Chapter 20 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collingwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Night of Terror Captain Staunton's first act, after suitably acknowledging Dickinson's expression of fealty, was to inquire how the crisis had been brought about. The explanation made his eyes flash fire. He ground his teeth and clenched his fists with rage as he thought of how he would have punished the ruffian who had laid such brutal hands upon his little pet. And when the explanation was complete, he wrung Bob's hand until it fairly ached as he thanked him for what he had done. Meanwhile, poor May still lay in her mother's arms, moaning with pain. And when the skipper took her on his knee, the little creature once more screamed out and complained that it hurt her shoulder. Upon this, Lance, thinking that something must be wrong, made a careful examination of the child, when it was found that Raleigh's brutal violence had resulted in the dislocation of her shoulder. It was, of course, at once pulled back into place, but the poor little creature's screams at the pain of the operation were terrible to hear, and Captain Staunton, in the hastiness of his anger, registered a solemn vow that if he ever again met Raleigh, he would make the wretch pay dearly for his brutality. How little he dreamed of the terrible circumstances under which he would next see this miserable man. The two whaleboats sped swiftly across the glassy surface of the bay, propelled by six stalwart oarsmen each, a little jet of phosphorescent water spouting up under their sharp stems, a long ripple spreading out and undulating away on either side of them, and half a dozen tiny whirlpools of liquid fire swirling in the wake of each as their crews strained at the stout ash oars until they bent again. The night had grown black as pitch. Not a solitary star was visible, and the heat was so intense as to be almost insufferable. But the men thought nothing of this in their eagerness and zeal now that they had taken the decisive step of throwing up their old life of crime and had fairly enrolled themselves once more on the side of law and order. In a very short time the boats had made the passage across the bay and were brought with an easy, graceful sweep alongside the landing at the shipyard. The occupants quickly disembarked, and while the ladies proceeded at once under the care and guidance of Rex and Bob to safe and comfortable quarters, in the schooner's spacious cabin, Captain Staunton gave orders that two large fires should be immediately lighted, one on each side of the landing, for the double purpose of affording them a light to work by and of enabling them to perceive the approach of their enemies. For, he remarked to Lance, you may depend upon it that their suspicions are thoroughly aroused by this time, and it will not be long before they are after us to see what it all means." A couple of huge heaps of shavings, chips, and ends of timber were speedily collected and ignited, the blaze soaring high in the motionless air and throwing a strong, ruddy light for a considerable distance round. Then Lance, with Bowles, Dickinson, Poole, and three or four other reliable hands, armed with torches, went carefully round the schooner, inspecting the cradle. It was unfinished, but Lance thought that a couple of hours more of energetic labor expended upon it would make it sufficiently secure to enable them to effect the launch. Time was now of immense value to them. They could not afford to be very particular, and so long as the cradle would serve its purpose, that was all they cared about. They accordingly set to with a will, and very soon the yard resounded with the harsh rasping of saws and the heavy blows of mauls wedging the timbers into their places. In the meantime, Captain Staunton, with the rest of the party, went on board the schooner, and after fully arming themselves with cutlass and revolver, opened the magazine, passed a good supply of ammunition on deck, 
cast loose the guns, and carefully loaded them, cramming them almost to the muzzle with bullets, spike nails, and anything else they could lay hold of. This done, the skipper, unwilling to leave the ship himself, called for a volunteer to go to the battery, spike the guns there, and lay a fuse in the magazine. Bob at once stepped forward, and, being accepted, provided himself forthwith with a hammer and a sufficient length of fuse, and set out upon his errand. He had scarcely disappeared in the gloom when Dale, who had volunteered to keep a lookout, gave warning of the approach of two boats, the launch and the pinnace, full of men. They were observed almost at the same moment by Lance, who hailed, "'Schooner ahoy! Do you see the boats coming?' "'Aye, aye,' answered Captain Staunton. "'We see them, and we'll give them a warm reception presently.' "'Very well,' returned Lance. "'We shall stick to our work and leave you to do the fighting. "'If you require any assistance, give us a call.' "'All right,' answered the skipper. "'Then turning to the men on the schooner's deck, he shouted, "'Run those two guns out of the stern ports there, "'and train them so as to sweep the boats "'just before they reach the landing. "'So, that's well. "'Now wait for the word, and when I give it, fire.' "'The boats, however, were meantime lying upon their oars,' their crews apparently holding a consultation. The firelight which revealed their approach revealed to them also the fact that the occupants of the shipyard were fully prepared to emphatically dispute any attempt on their part to land, and the sight brought vividly to their minds the aphorism that discretion is the better part of valor. At length, after some twenty minutes of inaction, during which the workers underneath the schooner's bottom plied their tools with a skill and energy that was truly astounding, the two boats were once more put in motion, their crews directing their course toward the landing, each boat having a rude substitute for a white flag reared upon a boat-hook in the bow. The moment that they were near enough for their occupants to hear him, Captain Staunton hailed them with an imperative order to keep off or he would fire into them. They at once laid upon their oars, and a man rising in the stern sheets of the launch returned an answer which was, however, quite unintelligible. Meanwhile, the boats, still having way upon them, continued slowly to approach. "'Back water!' shouted the skipper, seizing the trigger line of one of the guns, whilst Brooke stood manfully at the other. "'Back water, all of you! Instantly, or we will fire!' The man in the stern sheets of the launch waved his hand. The oars again flashed into the water, and both boats dashed at the landing place. "'Wait just a moment yet,' said the skipper, raising a warning hand to Brooke and squinting along his gun at the same time. Now, fire! The report of the two brass nine-pounders rang sharply out at the same moment, making the schooner quiver to her keel, and severely testing the construction of her cradle. A crash was heard, then a frightful chorus of shrieks, yells, groans, and execrations, and as the smoke curled heavily away, both boats were seen with their planking rent and penetrated here and there, and their occupants tumbling over and over each other in their anxiety to get at the oars, many of which had been suffered to drop overboard, and withdraw as quickly as possible to a somewhat safer distance. A hearty cheer was raised by the party in possession of the shipyard. Those on board the schooner reloaded their guns in all haste, and the hammering down below went on with, if possible, still greater energy. The boats were suffered to retire unmolested, and nothing further was heard of them for over half an hour. Then Dale, who was still maintaining a careful lookout, suddenly gave notice that they were again approaching. 
The two aftermost guns were accordingly once more very carefully pointed and fired, Captain Staunton giving the word as before. But by some mischance the muzzles were pointed a trifle too high, and both charges flew harmlessly over the boats, tearing up the water a few yards astern of them. The pirates, upon this unexpected piece of, to them, good fortune, raised a frantic cheer of delight, and bending at their oars until they seemed about to snap them, dashed eagerly at the landing place. There was no time to reload the guns, so, seizing his weapons and calling upon all hands to follow him, the skipper hastily scrambled over the schooner's bulwarks, and making his way to the ground, rushed forward to meet the enemy, who had by this time effected a landing. The two opposing forces met within half a dozen yards of the water's edge, and then ensued a most desperate and sanguinary struggle. The pirates had by this time pretty nearly guessed at the audacious designs of those to whom they were opposed. They had seen enough to know not only that an escape was meditated, but that it was also proposed to carry off the schooner, that beautiful craft which their own hands had so largely assisted to construct, and in which they had confidently expected to sail forth upon a career of unbounded plunder and license, in full reliance that her speed would ensure to them complete immunity from punishment for their nefarious deeds. Such unheard-of audacity was more than enough to excite their anger to the pitch of frenzy, and they fought like demons, not only for revenge, but also for the salvation of the schooner. But if these were the motives which spurred them on to the encounter, their adversaries were actuated by incentives of a still higher character. They fought for the life and liberty, not only of themselves, but also of the weak, defenseless women, whose only trust under God was in them. And if the pirates rushed furiously to the onset, they were met with a cool, determined resolution, which was more than a balance for overpowering numbers. Captain Staunton looked eagerly among the crowd of ruffianly faces for that of Raleigh, determined to avenge with his own hand the multitudinous wrongs and insults which this man had heaped upon him and his dearest ones. But the Greek was nowhere to be seen. On the skipper's right was Lance, and on his left Dickinson, the former fully occupying the attention of at least three opponents by the marvelous play of his cutlass blade, whilst the latter brandished with terrible effect a heavy crowbar which he had hurriedly snatched up on being summoned to the fight. Rex and Brooke were both working wonders also. Bowles was fighting as only a true British seaman can fight in a good cause, and Dale, with a courage which excited his own most lively surprise, was handling his cutlass and pistol as though he had used the weapons all his life. Steadily, and inch by inch, the pirates were driven back in spite of their superior numbers, and at last, after a fight of some twenty minutes, they finally broke and fled before a determined charge of their adversaries, rushing headlong to their boats and leaving their dead and wounded behind them. Captain Staunton did not follow them up, although the two whaleboats still lay moored at the landing as they had left them. He was anxious to avail himself of the advantage already gained in making good the escape of his own party, rather than to risk further losses by an attempt to inflict additional punishment upon his adversaries. Besides, that might possibly follow later on, when they had got the schooner afloat. His first act, therefore, after the flight of the pirates, was to muster his forces and ascertain the extent of the casualties. The list was a heavy one. In the first place, nine of the little band were missing at the muster. Bowles presented himself with his left arm shattered by a pistol bullet. Brooke was suffering from a severe scalp wound, and every one of the others had a wound or contusion of some sort which, 
whilst it did not incapacitate them for work, was a voucher that they had not shrunk from taking their part manfully in the fight. This first hasty examination over, an anxious search was instituted for the missing. The first man found was Dickinson, dead, his body covered with wounds, and a bullet hole in the center of his forehead. Near him lay Dale, bleeding and insensible, shot through the body. And a little further on, Bob was found, also insensible, with a cutlass gash across the forehead. Then Dick Sullivan was found dead, with his skull cloven to the eyes, and near him, also dead, one of the seamen of the Galatea. And lastly, at some distance from the others, Ned Masters, with another seaman from the Galatea, and two of the escaped prisoners, were found all close together, severely wounded, and surrounded by a perfect heap of dead and wounded pirates. These four, it seemed, had somehow become separated from the rest of their party, and had been surrounded by a band of pirates. This made a list of three killed and six severely wounded. The latter were gently raised in the arms of their less injured comrades and taken with all speed on board the schooner, where they were turned over for the present to the care of the ladies, while those who were still able to work resumed operations underneath the ship's bottom. Another quarter of an hour's hard work, and then Lance's voice was heard ordering one hand to jump on board the schooner and look out for a line. "'All right,' exclaimed Bob's voice from the deck. "'Heave it up here, Mr. Evelyn.' "'What? You there, Robert?' "'Glad to hear it, my fine fellow. Just go forward, look out for the line, and, when you have it, haul taut and make fast securely.' "'All right,' answered Bob with his head over the bows. "'Heave!' The line, a very slender one, was thrown up, and Bob, gathering in the slack, and noticing that it led from somewhere ahead of the schooner, bowsed it well taut and securely belayed it. He knew at once what it was. "'Hurrah!' he shouted joyously. "'That means that we are nearly ready for launching.' Bob's unexpected reappearance, it may be explained, was due to the fact that he had been merely stunned and had speedily recovered consciousness under the ministering hands of his gentle friends in the cabin, upon which, though his head ached most violently, he lost no time in returning to duty. Lance now made a second careful inspection of the cradle, and upon the completion of his round he pronounced that, though the structure was a somewhat rough and ready affair, it would do, that is to say, it would bear the weight of the schooner during the short time she was sliding off the ways, and that was all they wanted. "'And now comes the wedging up, I suppose, sir?' remarked Poole interrogatively. "'Wedging up?' returned Lance with a joyous laugh. "'No, thank you, Poole. We'll manage without that. Do you see these two pieces of wood here in each keel block? Well, they are wedges. You have only to draw them out, and the top of the block will be lowered sufficiently to allow the schooner to rest entirely in the cradle.' Get a maul, pool, and you and I will start forward, whilst you, Kit, with another hand, commence aft. Knock out the wedges on both sides as you come to them, and work your way forward until you meet us. The rest of you had better go on board, and see that everything is clear and ready for launching. When you're quite ready to launch, let me know if you please, Mr. Evelyn, and I'll go and light the fuse that's to blow up the battery, said Bob. Ah, to be sure, answered Lance. I had forgotten that. You may go up now if you like, Bob, and I'll give you a call when we're ready. Bob thereupon set off on his mission of destruction, while Lance and Poole with a couple of mauls began to knock out the wedges which Evelyn, foreseeing from the very inception of the work, some such emergency as the present, had introduced in the construction of the keel blocks. In a few minutes both parties met near the middle of the vessel, and the last pair of wedges were knocked out. "'That's a good job well over,' exclaimed Poole, "'and precious glad I am now,' 
that I thought of soaping them ways this morning. I knowed this here business must come before long, and I determined to get as far ahead with the work as possible. Now I suppose, sir, we're all ready? Yes, I think so, answered Lance. But I'll just go forward and take a look along the keel to see that she is clear everywhere. He accordingly did so, and had the gratification of seeing by the still brilliant light of the fires that the keel was a good six inches clear of the blocks, fore and aft. All clear, he shouted. Now go on board, everybody. Light the fuse, Robert, and come on board as soon as possible. Aye, aye, sir, answered Bob from the not very distant battery. A tiny spark of light appeared for an instant in the darkness, high up on the face of the rock as our hero struck a match, and in another couple of minutes he was running nimbly up the steep plank leading from the rocks beneath to the schooner's deck. "'Kick down that plank, Robert, my lad, and see that it falls clear of everything,' said Lance. "'Are we all clear fore and aft?' "'All clear, sir,' came the hearty reply from various parts of the deck. "'Are you ready with the axe forward there, Kit?' "'All ready, sir.' "'Then cut!' A dull, cheeping thud of the axe was immediately heard, accompanied by a sharp twang as the tautly strained line parted. Then followed the sound of the shores falling to the ground. There was a gentle jar, and the schooner began to move. "'She moves! She moves!' was the cry. "'Hurrah! Now she gathers way!' "'Yes!' shouted Lance joyously. "'She's going. Success to the petrol!' As he shivered to pieces on the stemhead, a bottle of wine which the steward— anxious that the launch should be shorn of none of its honors, had brought up from the cabin and hastily thrust into his hand. Three cheers for the saucy petrol, my lads. Hip, 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 hurrah! The three cheers rang lustily out upon the still air of the breathless night as the schooner shot with rapidly increasing velocity down the ways and finally plunged into the mirror-like waters of the bay, dipping her stern deeply and plowing up a smooth, glassy furrow of water fringed at its outer edge with a coruscating border of vivid phosphorescent light. "'The boats! The boats again!' suddenly shouted Bowles, as the schooner, now fairly afloat, shot rapidly stern foremost away from the rock. "'Good God! They are right in our track! We shall cut them in two. "'That is their lookout,' grimly responded Captain Staunton. "'If they had been wise, they would have accepted their defeat and retired to the shore. "'As, however, they have not done so, they must take the consequences.' Remember, lads, not a man of them must be suffered to come on board. A warning shout from the helmsman of the pinnace announced his sudden discovery of the danger which threatened the boats, and he promptly jammed his helm hard astarboard. The launch was on his port side, and the result was a violent collision between the two boats, the pinnace striking the launch with such force as to send the latter clear of the schooner, whilst the pinnace herself, recoiling from the shock, stopped dead immediately under the schooner's stern. There was a sharp, sudden crash as the petrol's rudder clove its irresistible way through the doomed boat, and a yell of dismay from its occupants, several of whom made a spring at the schooner's taffrail, only to be remorselessly thrust off again. "'There is a chance for them yet,' said the skipper, as the schooner continued to drive astern, leaving the wretches struggling in the water. "'The launch has escaped. She can pick them up.' At length the schooner's way slackened sufficiently to enable Lance, by looking over the bow and stern, to ascertain her exact trim. "'It is perfect,' he exclaimed to Captain Staunton, as he rejoined the ladder near the companion. "'She sits accurately down to her proper waterline everywhere, thus proving the correctness of all my calculations. A result which pleases as much as it surprises me, since I have had to depend entirely on my memory for the necessary formula.' 
Well, Captain Staunton, my task is now finished. Here is the schooner, fully rigged and fairly afloat. Take charge of her, my dear sir, and may she fully answer all your expectations. Thanks, Evelyn, a thousand thanks, exclaimed the skipper, heartily grasping Lance's preferred hand. You have indeed executed your self-imposed task faithfully and well. Let me be the mouthpiece of all our party in conveying to you our most hearty expressions of gratitude for the noble manner in which you have aided us in our great strait. To you is entirely due the credit of bringing our project thus far to a successful issue, but for your skill, courage, and resolution we might have been compelled to remain for years. Ha! What is that? A low rumbling roar was faintly heard in the distance, rapidly increasing in volume of sound, and breaking in with startling effect upon the breathless stillness of the night. "'It is another earthquake!' exclaimed Lance. "'Thank heaven we are afloat. Had it caught us upon the stocks, it would doubtless have shaken the cradle to pieces, and, in all probability, thus frustrated our escape.' The ominous sound drew swiftly nearer and nearer, filling the startled air with a chaos of sound which speedily became absolutely deafening in its intensity. The waters of the bay broke first into long lines of quivering ripples, then into a confused jumble of low foaming surges. The schooner jarred violently, as though she was being dragged rapidly over a rock bottom. There was a hideous groaning, grinding sound on shore, soon mingled with that of the crashing fall of enormous masses of earth and rock, above which could still be feebly heard the piercing shriek of horror raised by the occupants of the launch. The shock passed, but was immediately followed by one of still greater intensity. The waters were still more violently agitated. The schooner was swept helplessly hither and thither, rolling heavily and shipping great quantities of water upon her deck as the shapeless surges madly leaped and boiled and swirled around her. Finally, a long line of luminous foam was seen to be rushing rapidly down upon the schooner from the harbor's mouth, stretching completely across the bay. As it came nearer, it was apparent that this was the foaming crest of a wall of water some twelve feet in height, which was rushing down the bay at railway speed. "'Hold on, every one of you, for your lives!' hoarsely shouted the skipper, as the wave swept threateningly down upon the schooner, and the next moment it burst upon them with a savage roar. Luckily, the petrel's bows were presented fairly to it, or the consequences would have been disastrous. As it was, it curled in over the stem, an unbroken mass of water, filling the decks in an instant and carrying the schooner irresistibly along with it toward the shore at the bottom of the bay. "'Let go the anchor!' shouted Captain Staunton, as soon as he could get his head above water. But before this could be done, the wave had swept past, rushing with a loud, thundering roar far up the beach, even to the capstan house, and then rapidly subsiding. "'Get the canvas on her at once,' ordered Captain Staunton. "'Close-reefed, mainsail, foresail, and jib. We shall have some wind presently, please God,' and we'll make use of it to get out of this as speedily as possible. Merciful heaven, what now? A sudden roar, a rattling crash as of a peal of heaviest thunder, and the whole scene was suddenly lit up with a lurid ruddy glow. Turning their startled glances inland, our adventurers saw that the lofty hilltop, dominating the head of the ravine, near which was situated the gold cavern, had burst open and was vomiting forth vast volumes of flame and smoke. As they looked, the top of the hill visibly crumbled and melted away. The flames shot up in fiercer volumes, vast quantities of red-hot ashes, mingled with huge masses of glowing incandescent rock, were projected far into the air. 
a terrific storm of thunder and lightning suddenly burst forth to add new terrors to the scene, and to crown all, a new rift suddenly burst open in the side of the hill, out of which there immediately poured a perfect ocean of molten lava. In the face of this stupendous phenomenon, Captain Staunton's order to make sail passed unheeded. The entire faculties of every man on board the schooner were wholly absorbed in awestruck contemplation of the terrific spectacle. Onward rolled the fiery flood. It wound in a zigzag serpentine course down the side of the hill, and soon reached the thick wood at its base and at the head of the valley. The stately forest withered, blazed for a brief moment, and vanished in its fatal embrace, and now it came sweeping down the steep declivity toward the bay. This terrible sight aroused and vivified the paralyzed energies of those on board the petrel. Without waiting for a repetition of the order to make sail, they sprang with panic-stricken frantic haste to cast off the gaskets, and in an incredibly short time the schooner was under canvas. Still, there was no wind. Not the faintest breath of air came to stir the flapping sails of the now gently rolling vessel, and her crew could do nothing but wait in feverish, anxious expectancy for the long-delayed breeze, watching, meanwhile, the majestic, irresistible onward sweep of that fiery deluge. At last, thank God, there was a faint puff of wind. It came, sighed past, and died away. And now another. The sails caught it, bellied out, flapped again, filled once more, and the petrel gathered way. She had gradually swung round until her bow pointed straight for the capstan house, and Captain Staunton sprang to the wheel, sending it with a single vigorous spin hard over. The breeze was still very light, and the craft responded but slowly to her helm. But at length she came up fairly upon a wind and made a short stretch to the eastward, tacking the moment that she had gathered sufficient way to accomplish the maneuver. She was now on the port tack, stretching obliquely across the bay in a southerly direction, when a startled call from Poole, repeated by all the rest, directed Captain Staunton's gaze once more landward. "'Look! Look! Merciful powers! It is Raleigh!' was Lance's horrified exclamation, as he grasped the skipper convulsively by the shoulder, and pointed with a trembling hand to the shore. Sure enough, it was Raleigh. The pirates had either not waited to seek him, or had not thought of looking for him in the cottage before setting out on their expedition against the shipyard, and he had consequently been left there. But somehow, doubtless in the desperation of mortal fear excited by the dreadful phenomena in operation around him, he had at last succeeded in freeing himself from his bonds, and was now seen running toward the beach, screaming madly for help. The stream of lava was only a few yards behind him, and it had now spread out to the entire width of the very narrow valley. The unhappy wretch was flying for his life. Terror seemed to have endowed him with superhuman strength and speed, and for a moment it almost appeared as though he would come out a winner in the dreadful race. "'Bout ship!' sharply rang out the skipper's voice. "'He is a fiend rather than a man, but he must not perish thus horribly if we can save him.' He put the helm hard down as he spoke, and the schooner shot up into the wind, with her sails sluggishly flapping. But before she had time to get fairly round, the helm was suddenly righted and then put hard up. "'Keep all fast,' commanded Captain Staunton. "'It is too late. No mortal power can save him. See, he is already in the grasp of his fate.' Such was indeed the case. The fierce breath of that onward-rolling flood of fire was upon him. Its scorching heat sapped his strength. He staggered and fell. With the rapidity of a lightning flash, he was up and away again, but, 
merciful God, see, his clothing is all ablaze, and listen to those dreadful shrieks of fear and agony. Ah, miserable wretch, now the flood itself is upon him. See how the waves of fire curl round him? He throws up his arms with a harsh, despairing, blood-curdling yell. He sinks, he is gone, and the surging, fiery river sweeps grandly on until it plunges with an awful hissing sound into the waters of the bay, and the whole scene becomes blotted out by the vast curtain of steam which shoots up and spreads itself abroad. "'What a night of horror! It is hell upon earth!' gasped the skipper, as he turns his eyes away and devotes himself once more solely to the task of navigating the schooner. "'Thank God the breeze is freshening, and we may now hope to be soon out of this and clear of it all. Phew! What terrific lightning! And what an infernal combination of deafening sounds!' Fortunate was it for the schooner and her crew that the wind was from the southward, or blowing directly down into the bay. Otherwise they would speedily have been lost in the thick clouds of steam which rose from the water, or set on fire by the dense shower of red-hot ashes which now began to fall thickly about them. As it was, though the wind was against them, and they were compelled to beat up the bay, the wind kept back the steam, and also, to a great extent, the falling ashes, but notwithstanding these favorable circumstances, the crew were obliged to keep the decks deluged with water to prevent their being ignited. Gradually, however, the petrol drew further and further beyond the influence of this danger, and soon the rock at the harbor's mouth was sighted. Captain Staunton was at first somewhat anxious about risking the passage out to sea, being doubtful whether the explosion of the magazine had yet taken place, but a little reflection satisfied him that it must have occurred, as they had been drifting about the bay for nearly an hour, and he determined to push on. Suddenly there was a shout from the lookout forward. Boat ahead! Immediately followed by the information, It's the launch, sir. Bottom up. Such indeed it proved to be when the schooner a minute later glided past it. But where were her crew? They had disappeared, leaving no sign behind them. The hoarse, angry roar of the breakers outside was now distinctly audible and in another five minutes' time the petrel's helm was eased up. She was kept away a couple of points, and, shooting through the short narrow passage on the eastern side of the rock, began to plunge with a gentle swinging motion over the endless procession of long, slowly moving swell outside. The crew of the schooner had time to note, as they swept past the rock and through the passage, that the battery no longer frowned down upon the bay. In its place there appeared a yawning, fire-blackened chasm, and the shipyard was thickly strewed with masses and fragments of rocks of all sizes. Both whaleboats were swamped, and a solitary gun, with a fragment of its carriage still attached, lay half in and half out of the water. The timbers of the dismembered cradle still floated huddled together like a raft, close to the landing. "'Now,' said Lance to Captain Staunton, as soon as they were fairly outside of the harbor, "'we are free, thank God!' and as there seems to be no immediate prospect of your further needing my help, I will go and look after the wounded and the ladies. Poor souls, what a fearful time of suspense and terror they must have passed, pent up there in the cabin, listening to all these fearful sounds, and not knowing what it means or what will be the end of it. Lance accordingly descended, to find the ladies pale as death, and their eyes dilated with fear, resolutely doing their best with the aid of the steward to assuage the agonies of the wounded, he was, of course, at once assailed with a hundred questions, to which, however, he put a stop by holding up his hand and laughingly saying, Pray, spare me, and show me a little mercy, I beseech you, 
To answer all your questions would occupy me for the remainder of the night. Be satisfied, therefore, for the present with the general statement that we have successfully launched the schooner, as doubtless you have long ago found out for yourselves, that there has been a terrible earthquake accompanied by a volcanic eruption which bids fair to completely destroy the island, that we are now in the open ocean, having made good our escape, and that there is at present nothing more to fear. Where is May? She is asleep in that berth, answered Mrs. Staunton, so I hope the worst of the poor child's pain is over. No doubt of it, answered Lance. The fact that she is sleeping is in itself a sufficient indication of that. And now let me first thank you for your care of my patients here, to whom I will now myself attend, and next order you all three peremptorily off to bed, away with you at once to the most comfortable quarters you can find, and try to get a good night's rest. Utterly worn out, the ladies were only too glad to obey this order, and they accordingly forthwith retired to the cabins which the steward had already prepared for them. The more severely wounded were then speedily attended to, their injuries carefully dressed, and themselves comfortably bestowed in their hammocks, after which came the turn of the others. By the time that Lance had fully completed his arduous task, the first faint streaks of dawn were lighting up the eastern horizon, and he went on deck to get a breath or two of fresh air. He found the schooner slipping along at a fine pace under every stitch of canvas she could spread, including studding sails, with the breeze about two points on the starboard quarter, a clear sky above her, and a clear sea all round. Away astern, as the light grew stronger, could be seen a dark patch of smoke low down upon the horizon, indicating the position of Albatross Island, but the land itself had sunk below the horizon long before. My story is now ended. Very little more remains to be told, and that little must be told as tersely as possible. The petrel made a very rapid and prosperous passage home, and in due time arrived at Plymouth, long before which, however, the wounded had all completely recovered. Here the passengers landed, whilst Captain Staunton proceeded with the schooner to London, where the craft was safely docked and her crew paid off. The skipper then made the best of his way to the office of the owners of the Galatea, where he was received with joyous surprise. His story listened to with the greatest interest, and himself congratulated upon his marvelous escape from the many perils which he had encountered. And, best of all, before the interview terminated, his owners showed in the most practical manner their continued confidence in him by offering him the command of a very fine new ship which they had upon the stocks almost ready for launching. I must leave it to the lively imaginations of my readers to picture for themselves the rapturous welcome home experienced by the other personages who have figured in this story, merely remarking that it left absolutely nothing to be desired, its warmth being of itself a sufficient compensation for all the hardship and suffering they had endured. The gold which Bob's forethought had been the means of securing was duly divided equally between all who could fairly be regarded as entitled to a share, and though it certainly did not amount to a fortune apiece, it proved amply sufficient to compensate the sharers for their loss of time. On the receipt of his moiety, Bob gave a grand supper to all his friends in Brightlingsea, the which is referred to with justifiable pride by the landlady of the anchor, even unto this day. It was whilst this eventful supper was in full swing that Lance Evelyn unexpectedly made his appearance upon the scene. He was enthusiastically welcomed by Bob, duly introduced to the company, and at once joined them, making himself so thoroughly at home with them, and entering so completely into the spirit of the affair, that he sprang at a single bound into their best graces, 
and was vehemently declared by one and all to be a real out-and-outer. The next day found him closeted for a full hour with old Bill Maskell, after which, to everybody's profound astonishment, the pair left for London, only to return next day, however, accompanied by a fine, tall, soldierly-looking old man, to whom Bob was speedily introduced, and by whom he was claimed, to his unqualified amazement, as an only and long-lost son. Sir Richard Lascelles, for he it was, was indebted to Lance for this joyous discovery, and it was almost pitiful to witness the poor old gentleman's efforts to adequately express his gratitude to Evelyn for the totally unexpected restoration of his son to his arms. Bob, now no longer Bob Ledgerton, but Mr. Richard Lascelles, was speedily transferred to his father's house in London, and according to the latest accounts, he is now busy qualifying himself to enter the Navy. Poor old Bill Maskell was in a strangely agitated condition for some time after the occurrence of these events, being alternately in a state of greatest hilarity at Bob's return home, and despondency at the reflection that henceforth the remainder of their lives must be spent apart. Sir Richard has, however, done what he could to console the poor old man by purchasing for him a pretty little cottage and garden in the most pleasant part of Brightlingsea supplementing the gift with an allowance of one hundred and fifty pounds a year for the remainder of his life. Some two months or so after the arrival home of the petrel, a notice appeared in the Morning Post and other papers announcing a double marriage at St. George's, Hanover Square, the contracting parties being respectively Lancelot Evelyn and Blanche Lascelles, and Rex Fortescue and Violet Dudley. There is every reason, therefore, to suppose that those four persons are at last perfectly happy. It has been whispered, in the strictest confidence, of course, that there is some idea of fitting out an expedition to the South Pacific for the purpose of ascertaining whether Albatross Island is still in existence, and, if so, whether there is any possibility of working the enormously rich gold mine, the strange discovery of which is recorded in these pages. Should the expedition be undertaken and carried out with results worthy of note, an effort will be made to collect the fullest particulars, with the view of arranging them in narrative form for the entertainment of such readers as are sufficiently interested in our friends to wish for further intelligence about them. End of chapter 20 End of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collinwood